welcome to the American Geographical Society podcast. I'm Catherine Camp. So this is episode six, Geographers in the Field. This spring, the American Geographical Society released its 110th volume of the Geographical Review with a double special issue entitled Fieldwork in the 21st Century. This special issue of the journal follows an influential earlier special issue of the GR type called Doing Fieldwork, published in 2001. To many, fieldwork is the lifeblood of the discipline. So today we have joining us the editor of the Geographical Review, Dr. David Kaplan, professor of geography at Kent State University, and guest editors of the fieldwork issue, Dr. Kendra McSweeney, professor of geography at The Ohio State University, and Dr. Antoinette Winkler-Prince, a geographer and now deputy director of the Division of Behavioral and Cognitive Sciences at the National Science Foundation, to provide an overview of the latest issue. Thanks all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So while many of our listeners are avid geographers, some may have no clue what geographers get up to in our research. We're a pretty active bunch. Can you all share with us some of your most exciting experiences in the field? Antoinette, why don't we start with you? Before I respond to Katie's question, I need to just state a disclaimer. I work for the US federal government for the National Science Foundation. And the thoughts and opinions that I'm about to express are my own and are not those of the National Science Foundation. So Katie has asked about fieldwork and how that has inspired a lot of geographers. And I'm one of those fieldwork, muddy boots type geographers um, who really has a great joy in going places and experiencing them firsthand. My own dissertation research was in the Brazilian Amazon, which is sort of one of those grand field spaces um, where um, there are a lot of questions to be answered, a lot of geographical questions to be answered. And one of the best ways to do that is by experiencing being there and traveling in the spaces where people live, uh, the environments in which they inhabit, and not just try to deduce all this from remote sensing imagery or from secondary data. Quality work can be done by combining those things, but it's really nothing like going there and living on a boat on the river and experiencing the expanse, the heat, the bugs, um, all of that is, uh, gives one an immersive and appreciation for the lived lives of so many people. I echo Antoinette, uh, particularly around bugs and boats. Uh, I do field work mainly with indigenous populations in Central America, mainly using ethnographic approaches, a lot of hanging out with people, trying to understand uh, rural livelihoods. And I think some of my most exciting experiences in the field have been associated with um, traveling with local people, making dugout canoes in their everyday lives. But I think for me, one of the standout moments was when I was invited to cut uh, the umbilical cord of a a little newborn, uh, because for me, that really signaled that the community with whom I was living was uh, had sort of accepted me and was and was trusting my ability to do this uh, pretty sacred thing, which was which made me a uh, godmother. So that was pretty exciting. Wow, that's really exciting. And Dave, do you have a similar experience? Any similar experiences in the field? Uh, yeah, well, you know, in contrast to to Antoinette and to Kendra, who are muddy boots geographers, I'm a clean shoes geographer, <laughs> um, and. <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep things fairly fairly neat and tidy. I've done most of my research in uh, Canada, uh, Italy, and France. 
And uh, I've done a variety. I've done that quantitative research, of course, where I get data sets and I analyze those. But uh, as Antoinette said, there's really nothing like being on the ground. And, and sometimes you kind of have to make your own data. And uh, this was particularly true when I was doing a lot of field work in Paris. Um, you know, uh, you realize that different uh, countries have different statistical infrastructures. Uh, and given the kind of thing that I was most interested in studying, which was really ethnicity and diversity, uh, that's not something that the French government really likes to release. They don't like to uh, emphasize that in terms of their own thinking about their society. And so a lot of that stuff has to be done really piece by piece. So a lot of what my more recent research was, was basically going around the different neighborhoods and, and, and cataloging uh, as sort of a raw data, you know, sort of what the uh, different ethnic um, aspects of, of different storefronts, different businesses were. And I had a lot of great experiences. A lot of people would come out and chat with me about, you know, the various business. You get some very suspicious looks as well. But probably the most recent exciting thing was, you know, I'd have my camera and, you know, I, I came across in my little travels a, a, um, a storefront and on the top it said Hell's Angels. And I don't know how many of you uh, in the audience are aware of the Hell's Angels. This is a big motorcycle gang uh, that's been well known since the 1960s. They're not known as a peaceful bunch. Uh, and I was just so shocked to see this in the neighborhood I was studying in Paris. So I start taking pictures. And then a couple of like big burly guys start running out of the door after me and saying, what are you doing? And that was exciting because I just had to run away. Fortunately, they didn't catch me because I, I was a little worried about what they would do. I basically, I, I knew enough French to be able to talk to people, but I, I basically pretended that I knew nothing and I was just an American idiot, uh, which was always a good thing to have if you're in that kind of danger. But along with that, there were a lot of great experiences as well. I mean, I enjoy uh, the prospect of meeting with people, the kind of hospitality that so many people um, offer. But sometimes you run into the wrong crowd when you're doing field work. So Kendra told a, told a story about being really welcomed by her community, but not so much. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so traveling the world and learning about different environments and cultures sounds really exciting, especially at this time when I've been stuck in my bedroom for a few months in a row. But when you get down to it, as a researcher reading some of these papers, research papers, the methods sections are often the most boring parts. So why is there a need to devote an entire issue of the geographical review to doing field work? Dave, can you lead us off? Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd certainly like to, to talk a little bit about that. Now, um, I don't know how much of the audience knows about the geographical review. Uh, the geographical review is the oldest geography journal in the United States. Um, it's had a couple of different names, but it's actually been publishing since the 1850s. And, and really, when you think about the early uh, years, so much of it was effectively people going out to a different place that nobody else had seen and talking about it. And people just did that. That was their research. Was, you know, they explore, they'd inventory, they you know, really get a sense of what the place was like, and then they would impart that to the audience. And I think for a long time, the Geographical Review has been known as a place or a journal that had a lot of empirical content. That was a very big strength of it. Um, and um, uh, this is something that persisted through its history. And about 20 years ago, um, the uh, editor at the time, Paul Stars, uh, decided that he would have a special issue. Uh, and he, he took in another uh, geographer, Didier Delizer, and they both kind of guest edited this special issue on doing field work. Uh, and this was in 2001. It was an enormous issue. 
I just took a look at it. They had about 40 some papers. That 53. Out. 53. 53, yeah. It was, it was just just an amazing uh, you know, issue. Each of the papers was smaller than the one that we're gonna talk about, but at the same time, it involved so many different figures in the field. And there was just all these different aspects of what it was to do field work, the different kinds of field work that you would do, doing it with family, the kind of a landscape observation that's so important to uh, be involved with, uh, oral histories, even some on digital uh, field work, you know, which at the time was uh, obviously not, not anything like it is now. And that particular issue was probably the first issue that a journal had published just on field work. And so it gained a great deal of renown. It really was a shot in the arm to the Geographical Review at that time. And, you know, when I took over as editor about five years ago, uh, it was one of those things that, you know, I thought, wow, this is really something that people know the GR for. And I was talking to Antoinette and, you know, I think she may have suggested it. She said, well, you know why? maybe we should do a special issue on fieldwork today. And, and so to me, that was part of a lot of my own um, ambition to you know kind of reboot the gr a little bit make it a little bit more relevant to people but still hold fast to some of the things that had characterized it over all these years that strong empirical content the fact that it involved people doing things and going places thanks for that you jumped on to guest edit this issue and what excited you about the effort when dave came and approached you about it well, from, so from where I sit, I've been a practicing geographer. I was an academic at Michigan State for many years, continuing to do field work and guiding students to do field work. But then I, I went to NSF and became a program officer where you manage the grants submitted to geography and spatial sciences. And so you then see the kind of attention to field work therein. And proposals have a fair bit of detail about, about field work. But um, in guiding my own students, I know that there was very, there was remarkably little literature out there on how to do field work. So that issue, the one that Dave has just described, was really uh, the the piece. <laughs> um, and um, and so when when Dave and I discussed this potential, I thought, you know, so much has changed in 20 years um, that it's really time to readdress this. I also see how people struggle with articulating fieldwork and how to move from just exploration and description, which was early GR type work was much more descriptive. Um, and now the demands are on analytical work, um, the scientific work of geography. And in doing that takes a whole lot more than just describing what you see, but it also it takes a different sense and it usually involves multiple methods. And that's Really, and then when I started talking with Kendra about this, Kendra and I go back to the days when we were just finishing our dissertations and um, talking about how uh, fieldwork is really, it isn't just one thing, it's multiple things. And, and the hard part is actually integrating all of those bits together. And to do that well takes a lot of work and takes a lot of guidance. And the resources out there on that kind of guidance are really limited. It's, it's improved. There's some textbooks out there now. There's, there's even some journals devoted to this. But for geographers, there hasn't been um, that, that much good stuff. Thanks. And Kendra, what excited you about working on this issue? Yeah, well, I've been teaching a fieldwork seminar at Ohio State for over 10 years. And 
there's a lot that's written on fieldwork in geography. Uh, it's often prescriptive, sort of telling students what they should do. And there isn't always so much about uh, the failures, the serendipity, the excitement. And that comes from people telling their stories of their fieldwork experience. And for me, that 2001 uh, special issue was really the best example of people kind of um, talking really vulnerably about their work. And I thought it would be good to update that because in the almost 20 years since that issue came out, a lot has changed. I've seen uh, my students over the years become increasingly preoccupied by the constraints imposed by the Institutional Review Board process for ethical research, which unfortunately, well, the good part is it makes them think really seriously about the ethical commitments that they take on when they do field work. On the flip side, it makes them feel really constrained and as though they're only allowed to do what the IRB says they can do. So I thought that was, that's one of the uh, changes that's happening, shall we say, in the neoliberal university that's increasingly holding students responsible for what they do. Um, and there's a students, particularly grad students, are under a lot of pressure to publish now. They're under time to time to degree constraints. And all of those things really make the old model of, of field work, which was get out there and wander around for a year and then come back, really implausible. So I thought, how are, how are junior scholars in particular negotiating this terrain, especially given that there are a lot of new technologies now that in theory facilitate field work, but as we, as Antoinette and I were thinking, it probably also complicates field work a lot. And the, the papers in this special issue are the ones about podcasts, the ones about using, there's a great piece about using LinkedIn, uh, there's one about using cell phone data, Google Street View. I mean, what we found is that these technologies, yeah, facilitate, but they also deeply complicate research. For example, the piece by Caitlin Ryan and Sarah Tynan that talks about how they're communicating with their collaborators um, with their phones, but those phones are also uh, being surveilled by the state in uh, Western China and elsewhere. And so really tricky negotiations around uh, data and technology that I think in 2001, we couldn't have even really begun to imagine. So uh, that's been really fascinating to see how people are coping with those, with those things. Katie, if I might add, um, you know, field work is often sort of treated a bit like a black box, right? Go out there and and go explore the field. And as um, Kendra is pointing out, the Institutional Review Board and, and all of the other elements of the university as it is today is, is constraining uh, students' ability to, to just be out there. Um, and so that pressure um, also means that they, they need a little bit more exposure to the failures that happen. Um, before they set out under these uh, more difficult circumstances, because from all of that failure, you can learn a lot. And in fact, that failure can also lead to iteration in directions you hadn't even thought of. Yeah, this, this issue is really full of failure. And, and it's not bad failure. It's really generative, really productive failure. It's the author saying, I fell flat on my face and then I learned something really important and picked myself up and moved on. Uh, I particularly like the one by 
Antoinette's former student, Bilal, who talks about his inability to attach a GPS to a cow. <laughs> How he had to, you know, adapt to that. I, I want to say one more thing about what's changed. Uh, in the 20 years since the last issue, I think geographers have become even more aware than they were prior about the kind of grim history of geography fieldwork in sort of being a handmaiden to colonialism in the 18th and 19th centuries, even in the 20th century, a handmaiden to imperialism. And I think students are very, very keen to not contribute to that extractive model of research that sadly is a legacy of uh, geography as a discipline. And what we see in these pages is the ultimate antidote to extractive research. What we're seeing is research products that are deeply collaborative with communities where the research questions are inspired by communities. And it's really impressive to see just how how different uh, uh, fieldwork is today, and particularly in terms of researchers' relationships uh, to those, not who they study, but rather with whom they collaborate. And the 2001 issue did just make such a tremendous impact on our field. And, and as a grad student myself, I remember reading articles from the issue. So I'm sure that grad students now will be turning to the refreshed issue, and that will be exciting. I also think it's good to know that some of these issues, these articles are a little bit more open and honest and maybe not so dull as that, that intro methods paragraph that we often find in research papers. <laughs> the data were collected. Exactly. No, I, mean, I would say that was that was one thing. And, and in addition to that, I think there was a lot of interest in having an author, uh, you know, the, the authors who have contributed, you know, really uh, spanned a, a great spectrum in terms of uh, we had a few students, um, we had more international, uh, we had, we, I think, uh, you know, Kendra and Antoinette particularly tried to get a much greater diversity in terms of the kind of scholars and compared to the 2001 issue where uh, so many of them were already established, uh, this has a mix. And I think that gives uh, readers a more sense of the, the tentativeness of just starting out with some of the research that you're involved with. Absolutely, Dave. I, I want to reiterate that. I mean, this skews junior in terms of junior scholars. And it represents a really wide variety of geographic modes. So there's a lot of registers in which students and faculty are working across these papers, and they really vary. Uh, there's human environment, there's uh, social justice, there's digital, uh, the political uh, geography. It really spans um, the breadth of the field. So that's one of the nice things about the geographical review as a place for this. It really is a very broad, generous umbrella that incorporates all types of geography. Yeah, one thing I, I do like about the geographical review and trying to keep is that we do try to be very open to a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different perspectives. Uh, I don't want people to feel like they have to twist themselves into an ideological corner in order to contribute to the, the GR or a methodological or an epistemological. I mean, we really have all different kinds of uh, knowledge that comes out in the journal, uh, different kinds of experiences, and that is reflected in this particular issue. Uh, very different types of geographies that are going on here, and I want that to reflect the nature of the journal as a whole. 
kind of got into this question organically, but I wanted to give um, Antoinette, you, can try it. you spoke a lot about the themes, but if you wanna add any more, or Antoinette, if you'd like to add, what are some of the biggest changes you notice between the 2001 and the 2020 issue? Um, very few, very few of the folks who published in the current issue um, are working by themselves. Whereas back in 2001, I'd say maybe not a majority, but 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 many of them are working by themselves, and that is the goal too. You're you're a scholar. You go out there, you have your field site, there's also sort of possession of it, um, and you would, you would establish a, a series of articles that you wrote by yourself, maybe with one other person, whereas today, most of our, our junior scholars are being uh, brought up, as it were, in a uh, much more of a spirit of collaboration. Science is being done in a collaborative format, and I think that is represented really nicely in this issue. Um, either directly by the by authors and all, but also reflexively in what they did. Um, so I think that's a real um, difference. Um, I think the iterative nature of the fieldwork experience also um, between the time 20 years ago and now, even communication between the person in the field and others has changed. You know, when Kendra and I were in the field, email was in infancy. And we didn't, we didn't have a tether to our advisor. <laughs> Whereas uh, many grad students today, they're, they're communicating a lot with an advisor or with others. And so that's good and bad, right? It, it means that yet you have that. It means you're not left to kind of swim a bit by yourself. Whereas I think I talked with my advisor once in the almost year in the field, and it was in a really sweaty room in my apartment, and I could hardly hear what he was saying. So it wasn't even that useful. And so that forced a different, <laughs> my own decision making um, in a different way than, than today. Again, there's good and there's bad in that, but I think that, that connectivity while you're doing field work has really changed. Your connectivity to the rest of the world, to your academic tethers, um, and to other people. Totally concur with that, Antoinette. I also uh, think that students now are living in a world where we hear a lot about big data and how if you just have enough data, then you almost might be able to skip fieldwork entirely or or somehow big data will reveal the Earth's secrets and the world's secrets. But in fact, what the one of the things that I think has emerged from these papers that really was not present 20 years ago before we even had the term big data is how in fact big data might be able to help us see large patterns in the world, but it can't tell us why those patterns exist. It can't fill us in on what the underlying processes are. And I think one of the papers that uh, does that really nicely is the one by yeah. the one by Ingrid Boas and her colleagues that shows they tracked cell phone data in Bangladesh uh, to see where people went in the face of a cyclone and what they found was that some people moved towards the coast as a cyclone was moving in and raising the water and they, they couldn't understand why big data told them there was an anomalous pattern but it couldn't tell them why so they had to get out in the field and start talking to people in other words 
big data raises questions, fieldwork helps to answer. And so what we're seeing is a really nice merging of just what Antoinette said, this multi-method, not just qualitative, quantitative, but really hybrid, crowdsourced, multi, multi-data source, multi-method, uh, integrative uh, investigation. And I really salute a lot of these junior scholars because they're mastering all these different methods while they're getting their PhDs. It's, it's really impressive. Yeah, let me let me also add that one of the things I did like about uh, a lot of these articles is that they, you know, they, I always thought that the whole quantitative qualitative divide was sort of an artificial thing uh, that, you know, created these different mindsets and, you know, and, it, and I, I never liked the idea of a qualitative method versus a quantitative methods. And a lot of these articles really do bridge that divide. So they approach methodology in a different way than that traditional bifurcation. And it becomes a very healthy way of looking at the world, much more healthy, I think, than what we had had previously. Here, here. Yeah, I think it's the, it's the, what we see are people having really compelling research questions and then going to find the tools, whatever those tools are, to help them answer it. And not getting stuck in some sort of uh, uh, methods trap about what they should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I totally agree. So what I'm hearing from you guys is that there's a lot of hope for the future of geography in field work, that there's a lot of innovations and, and things are looking up, but it's hard to ignore the elephant in the room. COVID-19 pandemic has had a tremendous impact on how we all live and work and, and field work has not been spared. So what adaptations have geographers made to continue rigorous inquiry during this time? And, and how do you think those innovations will impact the field in years to come? Well, the communication tools that um, keep people tethered <laughs> are now being used in very creative ways to uh, to conduct interviews. So we're all zoomed out, or WebExed out, or all in any sort of meeting platformed out. But these are godsend to people who are trying to do interviews. Um, it's not quite the same as sitting in a uh, you know a small house on the river. But uh, being able to do interviews with using the technology, whether it's just a basic cell phone or a platform like Zoom, or even <clears throat> using texting, uh, texting opportunities like WhatsApp, um, this is the potential to continue some form of field work um, that is, is available right now. Um, in the same way, we all have to hunker down and stay at home. Um, you cannot travel, but you can still talk to people in this new way. And um, as long as those the people you're trying to reach have the technology, which uh, does it means there are going to be some people who cannot be reached with with the new technologies. But this these are trends that I think we already saw coming along. And uh, COVID-19, the pandemic, is now accelerating their use. And I suspect that we're going to see some really interesting innovations in the use of technology. Some things that we can't even imagine yet that people are going to try to do under these constraints. Again, I think it's an opportunity to be really even more creative with uh, with the integration of fieldwork with other kinds of data collection. Yeah, I echo that. I think uh, already uh, fieldwork had been such a, I, I think fieldwork is always, uh, to do fieldwork is to be adaptive and creative in finding new ways to answer questions. And I think the papers here 
do a great example are all great examples of showing how people fell on their face and then tried something different. And my sense is that geographers are going to do just fine in this new COVID-19 era. I've talked to a couple of undergrads I'm supervising over the summer. Uh, one of them is, for example, putting cameras on rather than doing ride alongs with fellow cyclists to figure out how they negotiate the urban landscape. She's suggesting that she put uh, GoPros on their helmets and have them film themselves. And then she's going to look at those data and via a Zoom based um, discussion, have them uh, describe to her what they were negotiating in that moment. Similarly, I think uh, some scholars and junior or otherwise are also rethinking how far away they have to go to answer the sort of questions they want to answer. I know. For example, just to use a very, very recent example, you do not need to go to Brazil to study anti-blackness. And so if that had been your research uh, topic, uh, you can certainly study that in the United States a lot closer to home and your analysis will be just as trenchant. So I think there's a rethinking of distance, a rethinking of, commu of sort of uh, communication strategies but no, no less interesting questions or less robust types of work. I'd say if I could just add to that too, um, in geography often field work is driven by the place, um, but I think this, this will force really a focus on the questions, the research questions that are being asked. And Kendra just pointed out, you can answer some of these questions in places other than the one you'd originally thought of going to. So I think that that might really um, uh, change things and could, again, result in some, some new and, and different findings uh, than otherwise expected. But it's an opportunity, really, to think broadly. You know, if, I, if I could just add to that, I, you know, I, I think there's, there's positives and obviously there are a lot of negatives as well. I know I had a couple of students who were, it was impossible for them to really do what they wanted to do. And their question had to be completely changed. Um, and that's that's one of the things. And once people feel free to travel, I, I hope they go out and do a lot of field work. At the same time, we do have a chance to, uh, just as we are in terms of our communications, we can kind of stretch the limit of what is out there, what's available. There's been so much discussion before this about you know virtual methodologies, about virtual communications, and all the other things that are virtual. Now we get to see just what they are. And I think we're seeing a lot of uh, things that are possible and a lot of things that really aren't so possible. But at the same time, I think that there are opportunities for some sort of virtual field work and stuff that people have done before. I had a PhD student, for example, use Google Street View in order to analyze particular uh, neighborhoods. And you can do that. Uh, is it as good as going out there? Probably not, but at least it's something that's possible to look at and to understand. And COVID's going to give people a new sense. Uh, I would say that three years from now or whenever this thing is finally over and everybody's assessed it, it'll be great to just see exactly where we are in terms of methodology and what really was harmed and what maybe it was helped a little bit. I think we'll find that there is a variety of different outcomes that came out of this. Hey, Dave, make sure that student of yours reads the paper by Stefano Block on using Street View because uh, he raises some really interesting questions about its utility. Yes, I will. End of Street View. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you all so much for your time today. It was a pleasure hearing more about 
the fieldwork issue of the Geographical Review. And for any of our listeners who are interested in reading the articles, we'll have a link to that uh, issue right here in our episode resources. So thank you all again for being with us today. It was a pleasure talking with you all. Thanks so much, Katie. Thank you.